This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft, that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Tracy K. Smith, author of the poetry collection, Such Color. I feel like the terms, the values, the forms of authority, even the sense of of a goals collectively that history has authorized are no longer useful. We'll be back with Tracy K. Smith after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. Next, I want to say, if you're listening on Monday, November 7th, the day this episode comes out, it's my birthday. And if you want to get me a present, consider donating to First Draft. I can't think of anything that would put a bigger smile on my face. But to be clear, my philosophy on birthdays is that you should mark your birth by giving back to the world, by making your birth matter in some way that benefits others. Not that you shouldn't give back daily, but for me, the belief is magnified on my birthday. So I hope what I have been giving over the last decade has brought some good in the world. The episode you are about to hear with Tracy K. Smith is the 413th interview I've done in the life of this podcast. And I do it out of love, dedication, out of passion, and a true desire to give something to the literary community. And what comes around goes around. So if you appreciate this podcast, if you listen every week, maybe you've been on the podcast before. One of the best ways to celebrate this archive of interviews and the ones yet to come are to support First Draft by going to patreon.com First Draft Writers. For your support, you will receive special thank you gifts like monthly writing tips, cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final shows, and other goodies depending on your monthly or annual contribution. So please consider supporting this show today. It's a labor of love, which takes so much incredible labor. This show alone probably took 10 hours to create, and it's only one of four this month and one of more than 50 I'll produce this year. Chances are you've listened to the show before, so why not make today the day you move from a listener to a member? Then I can email you a thank you note, and hopefully you'll feel great about your contribution and the content it supports. So if you're moved please share the love at patreon.com slash first draft writers. And mostly, and most importantly, thanks for listening and being a literary citizen of the world. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your support and for being here with me today right now, in this very moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Tracy K. Smith, who is the author of five poetry collections, including Such Color, New and Selected Poems, Wade in the Water, The Body's Question, and Life on Mars, which won the 2012 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. She also edited the anthology American Journal, 50 Poems for Our Time, and wrote a memoir called Ordinary Light, which was a finalist for the National Book Award in nonfiction. Smith served as the 22nd Poet Laureate for the United States from 2017 to 2019. She teaches at Harvard University. Her new poetry collection, Such Color, New and Selected Poems, is her first career-spanning collection and includes five sections— The first four include the best poems from award-winning collections that she had written earlier, and the last section includes 18 new poems. The entire work traces Smith's commitment to exploring the unknowable and the mysteries of existence alongside interrogations around grief, outrage, and praise. 
We see moments of pure hope and rapture alongside resistance to injustice and rage at our culture's racism. The collection is also infused with love at every turn. We began our discussion with me asking Tracy K. Smith how she chose which poems to include in the new and selected collection. This is the first new and selected that I've put together. A couple of years prior, there was a UK selected poems that came out. It was called Eternity. And I worked with an editor who had already made a lot of preliminary selections. And so that was a starting point in a way, but I also very much wanted such color to be distinct from that and to make an argument in a way about my work and my concerns. And um, the way I did that was to start from the new poems, which emerged in a very concentrated period of time and out of what I would say is a single state of consternation. You know, those are poems that I wrote during the summer and fall of 2020. And so I was, you know, living with the history that we were all watching unfold and also being made to dive back into because it was reactivated so much um, violence against unarmed black citizens and so much dialogue emerging around that, that reflected um, different degrees of care or disregard. And so the poems I wrote during that period were thinking about race, were attempting to find new metaphors to think about loss, violence, the ways that maybe even in, you know, my private day-to-day life, I carry that and what I might lean on as a kind of anchoring or bolstering force. And so I wanted to go back in my work and say, have I been asking for this kind of guidance throughout my career? Have I been thinking in terms of race as a priority throughout my my writing life. And so it was an opportunity to go back and see to what extent I could make that argument. Um, The terms have changed. The vocabulary has changed. But I think what I found is that, yes, I've been preoccupied with lives that occur in what we think of as, you know, social margins, constructed margins, and the listening that I've been seeking to do has has gravitated in many ways toward Black spaces or geographies. One of the things that struck me about the way that these are arranged, and of course they go in time, right? They start in 2003, so we're covering a lot of time, a lot of, I'm sure, growing and learning in your life, a lot of changes in the world that we live in. And the way that I interpreted your movement had kind of to do with, in the beginning, the poems were, um, they were more rooted in maybe stories of people. And there was, there was like a little bit more of a, of a lightness to them. And, and also a sense of wonder at the world we live in, but very rooted in, I think, in the earth. And as we move uh, through the collection, I, f- I felt like your view got bigger and in mm-hmm. some ways make more dreamy, like maybe looking back in history even further and looking beyond our planet to kind of the answers to tell us who we are and where we belong in the world. And then coming back to a very specific moment. Does that make sense to you when I... Yeah, it makes really clear sense. I I would say that um, my sense of the first uh, collection, the body's question, is that I was looking for a vocabulary in which to be and claim a self. And it begins with the body in many ways. It begins with watching other people embody themselves and their stories and trying to draw courage from that. And then Duende almost for me marks the desire to be me, but in engagement with a world, a world that is inviting and that also pushes me to feel self-conscious of my position as somebody from this country, you know, and as an American. 
And then I think those other departures that you mentioned, like up into what we imagine is space or out into what we imagine is the future. Um, in some ways, that was a way of thinking differently about this anxiety of Americanness. You know, what is the future that we in in this in this place are making inevitable by our choices um, toward ourselves as a nation and toward others? And then somehow history became a really inevitable site to to try and interrogate, you know, contend with. But the more I think about that. You know, I've always said, well, I, I tell myself that if I can listen, if we can listen anew to history, it can tell us what, what we have not yet heard, what we might need to know in order to, you know, make the best of, of where we currently are. Now, I feel like the terms, the values, the forms of authority even the sense of of a goals collectively that history has authorized are no longer useful <laughs> to where we are. And so maybe my interest or um, anxiety about history is is about trying to find the right direction for the refusal that I think we must begin to claim more vigorously, you know. I think that's what I'm trying to struggle with right now. And it's in, it's happening in prose right now. <laughs> but I know it will migrate into the poems as well. Is what you're saying, too, does that translate into maybe a feeling inside of a need for a whole new vocabulary and you don't even know what it is yet? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm beginning to think of terms. I'm hoping I'm I'm mapping some of these ideas onto terms, you know, one one, you know, we talk a lot so much about freedom in this country, but I feel that one of the things I've learned about myself and others like me is that in America, we are freed and perceived as having been or descended from those who are freed, but not innately free. And so that seems like a site um, where new terms are really necessary. Um, and I'm also really trying to think about the American imagination as a space, no matter who it's directed at or who it's extending from, that has been marked by whiteness. That's probably not new, but I'm trying to be, bring terms to that that might also allow us to think about how to reconfigure the imagination that we share. Do you ever feel really limited by language? <laughs> language is so funny. I feel so free and excited in language in so many moments, but the first few weeks, months, passes, drafts of something like these essays that I'm trying to write, I do feel locked out, you know, and then something really beautiful happens. It's sometimes by way of a shift in images. It's sometimes by way of a shift in tone that language says, okay, now you are welcome. Come in and I'll work with you. And maybe in some ways that dance, that struggle is, is, it's part of why <laughs> language is the medium that I'm interested in because it's it's miraculous to get past that gate each time that it happens. Do you ever spend time just trying to learn new words? I wish I could say off the top of my head, yes, that I, you know, poured over the dictionary like some people did and maybe still do. I think sometimes the terms, when my terms change, it's often not toward like new vocabulary, but new sense within the words that I live with and um, have accepted in one way, but now understand mean in other ways as well, or need to believe that. I was talking in class this week with students about decorative language and poems versus, um, you know, direct familiar or, you know, even like demotic or simple language in poems. And um, I've always loved the latter in a way, you know, there are some words that, that enter in and make beautiful sense and, and sound, but I really love it when the humble language that is right here can um, be deployed in a way that it yields beautiful, marvelous revelation. And so that's what I'm looking for. I think. One of the things that struck me with a lot of your poems is that you got to this transcendent endings, which is, not easy to do. And w one example is the poem called My God, It's Full of Stars. In that poem, you are 
explaining basically um, what what you see in in the universe and what you see. I mean, you're talking about what you see on Earth, but also um, what you see out of a huge telescope and what you see in films. Your father worked on the Hubble telescope and you you end in the last part because it's in five parts talking a little bit about what was going on on earth while they were struggling to get clear views. And mm-hmm. in the end you say the, f- the first few pictures came back blurred and I felt ashamed for all the cheerful engineers, my father and his tribe. The second time the optics jibed, they saw to the edges of all there is so brutal and alive. It seemed to comprehend us back. I just was slayed by that ending. And I just, I wanted to ask you about that. If it was like, like the experience of writing it and also realizing. Mm -hmm. That poem was really fun. Uh, You know, like interesting. I I started in the first section trying to make sense of where I wanted to believe my father had gone in death. So um, the universe became a site of the afterlife. And I thought I would build it in a way that I could live with and accept and that kind of extends in a way um, through the third section. Even the second section um, is kind of seeking to think about um, outcomes, but it does so by way of, you know, Charlton Heston, who seemed to star in every science fiction movie that I grew up watching in the 70s. It wasn't until the last section was missing that I remembered my father had a literal connection to some of these very same settings from the work that he did for a period of of my childhood. And then something sort of unlocked the sort of like private grief, the public anxiety about America and the future offered me a sense of what my own stake was in this. And uh, the poem became a way of bringing my father back briefly I don't know how to talk about building the last line. My father used to try and explain to me what the Hubble was designed to do. Um, And he said, it will help us to see how the universe was born. To me, it always seemed, and I still have to correct myself sometimes now, that a telescope like that is a way of looking at the future, (laughs) you know, what is to come. And of course, it's the exact opposite, although maybe that is instructive in a similar way. And so looking back at something that had seen so much felt almost like a way of looking at an ancestor, an elder. And um, maybe because of where I was in grief, I needed to attach a sense of compassion to that. I needed to tell myself that my father didn't merely remember or know me, but that he comprehended something that felt like a, a shift in, in capacity for me, that he comprehended something that could um, console and affirm and authorize me in ways that, that I, I felt I wanted for. And it seems in a way, although maybe this is a sad statement of, of, this country and humanity and how we treat each other that in some ways the universe and looking out into the universe is what binds us that that's what we have in common. Cause we don't even treat the earth <laughs> the same way anymore. And so that there is some like binding force with the universe that we can't even find on earth anymore. I don't know if mm. that's sad or not. I think it's chastening. We will be in the universe very soon if we don't figure some of this stuff out <laughs> by my by my imaginative framework. Um, we will not be on this planet for much longer if we don't devise new terms. And I think devising new terms has to do with revealing what sits at the center or even seeks to stand behind the terms that we have accepted and 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 used for for as long as we, we've been here. And that's really a big job. (laughs) But I also believe that language, like I said, you know, you struggle at the gate of this thought, this form, this essay, this question, and it deflects all of these wrong attempts. And then it, it admits something that might be useful. 
for me, the thing that is always useful is the most humble thing. <laughs> it is not the thing in which I'm trying to sound authoritative or smart, but it's where I get sort of like brought back to a bedrock of sorts. And I feel like that's maybe what the collective effort, at least of those of us in this country, needs to find a way of, of being, you know, what is the bedrock? Usually bedrock is something that comes after strife. I'm taking this class right now and it's kind of like a spiritual class about our growth as humans. And one of the things they talk about all the time is that like the basic essence of everything that we are and we're trying to get to is truth, beauty, and goodness. And yeah, I'm just wondering what you think of that because you are exploring these really like really painful things in the history of, of African-Americans in this country and how we treat each other and the planet and is that where we're going? Mm, truth, beauty, and goodness. I, I love those goals. Those are my goals. I think that they're not everybody's goals, I don't think. I think that we have been mightily distracted by the allures of, you know, that which is rooted in transaction. You know, I think that our vocabulary of selfhood has has kind of been drawn into that. We want followers. We want to influence and therefore draw some sort of like um, sense of like monetary worth, right? From that, there's a commodity that we ourselves can can represent. And I feel like that's a real diversion from those other things. But I think there's a path back, you know. What in what in your class makes it feel like those things are still within our grasp? I think for me, because I'm an optimist and also maybe um, naive, <laughs> mm -hmm. I I feel like at our very essence, I am not ready to let go of the idea that people are good. I am not ready to surrender to the idea that we don't live in a place that is so filled with beauty. It brings tears to my eyes every day, whether I'm looking at a leaf or one of your poems and that, um, there is this kind of elemental truth that we are born with, that we really unlearn so much of that in our life because of our circumstances, politically, socially, culturally in our homes. And that I want to believe that when we take everything else away, that's who we are. And I try to mm -hmm. even think about that, about the worst people in the world, how badly they've been harmed or just how wrongly they've, they're thinking. But I also think you're right. Like, I just don't think Marjorie Taylor Green kicking an activist to get to her truth and goodness. It's a journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a journey. But there are a lot of sites. So I, my bad habit is to go out to that place and say, well, that is what we're dealing with. And we're implicated by that in some way. Um, how can we succeed if if we can't transform that from the start? But then I think about when I come closer in and I think about like the spaces where I do feel those values, you know, alive um, or or the potential for them. And it's it's rooted in community, into different forms of intimacy. It's rooted in um even things that feel like ritual, right? Um, things that pull us into conversation with the large, the mysterious, and, you know, the otherwise terrible, you know, the wonderful, the awful. Um, art does that. Poetry does that. Um, I think faith can do that. Nature is always waiting to do that, like you say. Um, and so I have to remind myself it's here <laughs> and I'm in it. Um, and I can start start within that ring um, and see what happens. Yeah. I mean, that was a lot to throw at you. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I see, like, I feel that in you. And I also think it's our duty as humans, and it comes through your poetry to call out the world to call out humanity when it's not doing that. So I was, I just think about your poem. I sit outside in low late afternoon light to feel earth call to me. 
And I'm wondering if you could read it and we could talk about it because there is an element of that where, where there isn't that support out there for good things. Sure. I sit outside in low late afternoon light to feel earth call to me. I wish it would grab me by the ankles and pull. I wish its shadow would dance up close, closing in. When I close my eyes, a presence forms, backs away. I float above a lake, am dragged back from a portion of sky. Down, down, the falling doesn't end. Every marked body must descend. Is the world intended for me? Not just me, but the we that fills me. Our shadows reel and dart. Our blood simmers, stirred back. What if the world has never had, will never have our backs? The world has never had, will never have our backs. Our blood simmers, stirred back. What if the we that fills me, our shadows real and dark, is the world intended for me? Not just me, but every marked body must descend from a portion of sky. Down, down, the falling doesn't end. I float above a lake, am dragged back when I close my eyes. A presence forms, backs away. I wish its shadow would dance up close, closing in. I wish it would grab me by the ankles and pull. I'm glad you um, called this poem out. It, it like a lot of the new poems in, in such color, emerges out of what has been a practice for me that is, I think, essentially about wanting to touch base or be drawn back to those those good things we were talking about. And so meditation has become uh, a way of entering into dialogue with something that is untainted by the world and its density. And so this is a poem that emerges from some of the visual, um, to me, what feels like visual and telepathic dialogue, or at the very least engagement or interaction with an other source. So it's a palindrome poem, right? I descend into the poem by way of the feeling that pushes me to the place of needing something and also even a little bit of the tracking of what that experience feels like. But I wanted to make a poem. And so form helped me to, to turn that inroad into something else. And by looking at it backward, I, I, um, I felt like it allowed me to think about what might feel capable of, of lifting, <laughs> lifting, you know, the, the beginning of the poem feels to me like being drawn down, but maybe the end of the poem is a wish for something that's, that's operating in the other direction. Um, sometimes when I read it, that's what I see. What would it mean to be closed in on by beauty and truth and goodness, like you say, or at the very least that all comprehending source that's not hamstrung by our bad rhetoric and our bad behavior. Yeah. And there's so much, you know, that you live through, through the body that you have of our bad behavior. And I was wondering when you were talking about, you know, is the world intended for me, not just me, but the we that fills me, our shadows real and dart, our blood simmers stirred back. What if the world has never had, we'll never have our backs. And I was wondering, what is the world that you meant and it was probably all encompassing. It was, maybe it was the earth, maybe it was the history, maybe it was, you know, looking at this planet from far above, but it was just that line will stay with me for a really long time. And I just wanted to ask mm -hmm. you about it. I can locate the sense of the world in that line from the verb having our backs, which is such a human thing. I have your back. You know, we, we tell each other we used to, <laughs> maybe it's dated vocabulary, but what I'm asking about is the day-to-day, -day, 
the world that feels like it betrays me, that betrays all of us, you know, pretty constantly. We we make that happen, um, I think, for one another. But sometimes, especially as a Black person in this country, you are reminded that the terms of operation have been designed and scripted to disempower you. And that's a huge thing, you know, <laughs> that is a big gate. And then it's also true that even when that may not be the professed intention, you know, the good people that we do know and the beautiful um, spaces that we do um, recognize as real have been so deeply imprinted by what I think of as like a mental circuitry that oftentimes they can't help but perpetuate this um, larger systemic disregard. And that is wild. <laughs> That's what 2020 made me recognize. You know, it was for me, it was contextual. It's like, okay, I watch uh, out, I watch the news, I'm here, I'm reading the paper, and I understand it is not new what is happening, though it's disheartening, despicable, um, and must be acted against. And then I stand up and I go into another space, you know, in 2020, it was like, oh, let me tune into the Zoom <laughs> where I'm supposed to be talking to people that I, I think I know. And a lot of those dynamics enter into that space. And I just felt, wow, I felt closed out in many dimensions or many on many scales. And, you know, I've come to recognize that the realizations that many of us made in 2020 were gifts. Um, we have tremendous work to do, but we also, I think, have the capacity to do it in each in our own way, each in our own vocabulary. So in your in your new poems that you wrote, you started this new section with a poem called Riot and you ended with the poem mm -hmm. called Riot. So I wanted to ask you about the two parts of that. And it is a little bit of a longer poem, but if you want to read the beginning or ending or a piece of one, Okay, yeah. That'd be great. I, I'd love to. I'll read the beginning of um, the first one. Um, and I'll say this is a poem that emerges out of meditative dialogue. Um, you know, I know a lot of people meditate and, and are seeking a space of um, like absence of thought, language, image. And um, I guess the particular sense of vulnerability that set me to meditating in the first place, um, begged or cried out for, for, for contact. <laughs> and I think maybe, or maybe I, I, I will say this is a tradition I've been born into. You know, I think that black people have long claimed actual, you know, and purposeful contact with ancestors. And I feel like that started for me. Um, during the, the period of these poems. So there's call and response in this poem that m enacts the call and response that I found myself engaged in, which was really exciting, <laughs> um, upending in a way. Riot. Sometimes I feel the black in my heart like a map made of tar. You need only part your lips to mar what isn't yours. Think better. Don't bother. Your druthers clog my sieve is the matter. We pay to live. Our nerves carry a charge. We grieve each day. We pray for you. Holy, holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, how thick is memory, how deep the grave, thick is memory, deep the grave. How many are we? Many are we. What have we been led here to learn, to teach? We have been led here to learn, to teach. Is life within our grasp? Life within is in our grasp. 
Have we ever felt death so near as we do this year? Have we ever? Near, dear, year upon year. The ancestors live upstairs in a room without chairs. When I visit, they welcome me without words. They crouch, encircling me. They are without edges. Wordless, they fill me. Warmth without weight. I ask for something. Without shame, I beg. They owe me nothing. But they give. They give. Can you hold my death in your mind? Can you leave it there, live and let grieve? I like you. And like you, I move through the days. A dark shape is what my body makes. Good is how I was taught to look, to be. Despite what's done to me, woe is me. To say is to do is also true. Woe is you. This is not the riot. This is reality. It rolls, roils, briefly recoils. It hammers down. We fall, rebound. You chase. We race. You hate. We wait. It's a poem that is um, really calling out in some ways, very apparent um, to Gwendolyn Brooks, <laughs> you know, her, her, her um, poem, the same title, but also um, to other ancestors that I claim. And what's really interesting to me about the form of dialogue in that, and I feel like I can say what's interesting to me about it because it, you know, and yes, I, I captured it, but it also emerged from this other process is that the answer is embedded in the question somehow. And that that felt like a delightful behavior of language. It felt like um, insight being tailored to the imagination of someone who's, you know, really interested in the small spaces that language invites us into. And so to think that a tilting of the perspective or a shifting of the scale takes a problem and sort of transforms it into um, power, <laughs> a form of insight that felt really, really useful, you know, to me. And maybe that's like, you know, we, we started with that big question. Well, here we are <laughs> in this world in 2022 with um, democracy sort of um, creaking and how do we get to the good and the beautiful if we believe it's still there? Um, maybe it's nearer than we think if we can shift the way we're looking at these terms um, and the way that we, if not frame our questions, then are willing to receive um, answers, right? Um, it's in our hands, as, as Toni Morrison so beautifully reminded us. And so maybe, maybe that's a, an invitation to feel authorized, hopeful. I don't know, something other than the despair that is often nipping at the heels, you know. And that dialogue in the poem, you know, people can't hear that some of this is in italics. And I w mm -hmm. was wondering, since you mentioned that you're meditating, but not necessarily to get to an emptiness, but to get to a dialogue, if that's what the dialogue is like for you that some of the parts that are in italics are maybe what some other voice inside of you says to you when you're meditating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so interesting. Um, you know, I think there is a mind's ear that's akin to our mind's eye, right? And maybe what I always imagined people heard when they were saying they spoke to the ancestors was a voice in the room, you know, like the voice of God in a movie or something. Um, but what it is, I think, isn't so different from the, the way that um, an idea occurs, only you know it's not yours. <laughs> a thought that for me feels more um, confident enters into 
my head or almost my mouth. And it, it invites me to claim it and, and maybe even engage further with it. Sometimes when I'm meditating, I, I think, well, actually not sometimes every single time, like, am I just making this up? Is this just me? Like, am I, you know, and I think, okay, this is the ego that comes in to try and disrupt this process. So I can come back into that, you know, uh, left brain. And, and so I, I've learned to kind of just turn away from that. Um, but sometimes I say, if this isn't me, can you like, just give me a sign, you know, and, and sometimes the words that appear are words I don't know. <laughs> and then later are, are, are words that I need to know, you know, words that become relevant to the question or the unrest. And so I guess what I'm saying is poetry for me is lifting off from the space of a, a practice that is rooted in the conscious mind. For me, it was never always rooted in the conscious not mind. Um, and the, the self, I hope it was always never always rooted in the self, but now it feels like those differences or divergences feel really adamant. When I read, may, do you feel this way? Sometimes when you read poetry, you're both lifted out of yourself and, and you feel the, the grip of your real self, your better, uh, larger self more fully. And I think in some ways that is what maybe that's the analogy of, of, you know, meditative dialogue as I would describe it. And so that tells me there are lots of tools for getting to that feeling of being in and out of the self and, and art making is one, um, a ritual practice like meditation is another, but what other ones are there? There must be many. I have a few answers to that question. I mean, I feel like poetry connects me to the world. I feel like when I read poetry, it is a spiritual practice of sorts to read it and really pay attention in a certain way. I feel like there's something so like salient, like everything's concentrated in poetry. It's not like prose where you, you have to, you have to pick the best, best words that can evoke this feeling. And it's so, it's such an evocative medium. I am moved to my core by dance. And I just saw Momics. Have you ever seen them? No. I mean, I would get on a plane and say, if they're in Italy, go to Italy if you can't see them in Boston. I mean, they are so incredible. And through this wordless medium, I weep when I see the stories that people tell with their bodies and that the way they get to our humanity. Like when I see dance, I just want to go out and live. Hmm. I don't know if you've ever had that experience or watch much dance in your life. I, I had a, a feeling, um, I, it was a different feeling, but I, the first time I saw the Pina Bausch Dance Company perform um, the full moon work, full moon, I guess, I don't remember how it's, and there's dialogue in that. So there's this beautiful, visceral, emphatic, just like movement that you feel, you see, but it it enters your body. And there's also text. And so, you know, I'm a text person and it was, it was startling and wonderful to have my, this other self activated already, and then to have a voice. Um, and I remember, it's funny, I had just had my first child and I was going through all of the postpartum changes in terms of my sense of who, who I am, what I am, what I'm here to do. Is there something now that I must surrender and let go of? And there's a moment in that, that dance where uh, a woman's voice says, I'm young, I'm young. And I, my reaction wasn't necessarily to want to, like, I want to go out and live, but to feel the clench of that life urge, you know, and to feel it all at once in all the many ways I have felt it over the course of my life and to feel it with the knowledge that some of those are now gone. And that was a really, probably the most overwhelming and unexpected response that I'd had to, to watching dance, which I have done, um, of, you know, different moments in my life, but that was, I was open in a way or opened in a way. And, um, that's the goal, right? Like, I feel like, um, if, I don't know if it's okay that I keep bringing this back to that question you asked, but everyone, the people that we think are the adversary, there's a portal, a port in perhaps where they would feel open. 
I don't know what's there. I don't know what they would be, you know, weeping for or, you know, like gasping about. But we have that. We're made probably with that. And it's it's exciting to think that we're capable of touching that thing in others. And we might not even quite know what it is that will will reach it, you know. I wonder if Pina Bausch knew that having someone say, I'm young, I'm young, um, would just break someone open. But maybe it's not her job to know. And I also think sometimes the universe hands you moments that you don't even expect. I mean, I had like a super like incredible insight, spiritual, like otherworldly experience once when I was pulled over on the side of the highway to go to the bathroom in the woods. I mean, I didn't know. I was just struck by this sense of like just one of those moments that maybe people do drugs to understand. And it it was fleeting. It went away so soon, but I felt like I saw the whole universe in one second and then it was gone. I don't know Mm -hmm. why it happened then. There was nothing spiritual about what I was doing. (laughs) But I guess what I'm saying is that there's latent invitations in the universe everywhere. Oh, I love that. And so we we have to stay hopeful so that we can see and, you know, receive them. Right. And I was thinking when I was reading your poem, the, uh, uh, the poem that you that you read about the stars and the ending of that, that I don't know exactly what your dad did for the Hubble, but that you actually have the same job, but you're just doing it through poetry. And I'm, I was wondering if you've ever thought about poetry that way. Hmm. I haven't used that analogy or that, that metaphor, but I think maybe my way of seeing it, and it's actually for me, it's the same context because now I, having written that book, or maybe I've always felt this way, but the universe is this space. It's the space where the soul waits attached to us or, or, you know, watching where it's where the, you know, we as material beings began, but it's also where we as, you know, immaterial beings will return. And so the work of language for me is about trying to climb back up toward where the soul is, you know? So maybe, um, that's a way of imagining. Yes. Like if, if that last line of that poem, you know, which we talked about is about something that is watching with comprehension that has always been watching with comprehension. Um, maybe the poem is trying to get to that something or trying to become that something and not that poem, but any, any poem, right? Yeah. I was thinking earlier too, when you were talking about, you know, writing all these poems in 2020, the, the new ones, and you were talking, you, you'd mentioned something about comfort and I was thinking about where, where do you go? What is your comfort food? Like not literally, but figuratively when you write poetry all day, I mean, you, you had the slowdown. So you were deeply into poetry and having discussions of poetry and what it brings you, but is poetry your spiritual comfort? Mm-hmm. It really is. It's, you know, it's my work in some ways. Sometimes I'm I'm leaning over it, reading to prepare to teach or teach something. And so it becomes different. But when it doesn't have to be transactional, <laughs> it is, it's a way that I, I do believe I get to cross paths with my eternal self. That book, most of those poems were written outside. That's not how I usually write, but that's where I needed to go to just breathe. <laughs> like feet in grass and trees. And that was a really just, there was traffic (laughs) in that transaction. Maybe that's like what part of that experience of the universe that you had out by the side of the road, but all those intentions and lives and systems and orders um, that operate outside of the human, but alongside or above the human, that that was a form of like the comfort, you know, normal times, I guess I'm still looking for some version of that because I usually need to write near a window where I can like see trees and kind of tune into that traffic, you know. Are there any other poems you want to talk about before I get to the final questions? (laughs) Um, Actually, what did you have? I mean, there's the 
there's a civil war poem. It's too long to read, but it's another, maybe it reminds me of another way of thinking about that. You know, what I, that all comprehending that, that distant sight, um, because that's a, that's a version of history that astonished me because it felt like the voices, um, in these letters written during the civil war to Abraham Lincoln or to members of people's family families by black soldiers who were involved in that, in the, in the conflict, um, those letters waited as if they were still respiring, <laughs> um, as if they weren't artifacts, but, you know, like entities. And that was probably the first moment where looking at history felt like, waiting to make eye contact in a way, you know, maybe that poem is important because it, it, in some ways it even contradicts maybe what I might've said about history at the beginning of our conversation. Um, like we're shaking it to try and hear the right things. No, it's shaking us, you know, it's, 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 it's waiting for us to settle into the space where we can actually hear what's there, um, which is, you know, which is dignity, which is wisdom, which is patience, which is also um, understanding of what's possible. And this poem is called, I Will Tell You the Truth About This. I will tell you all about it. And I'm really mm -hmm. glad you brought it up because that's the one I wanted to talk about. Are you serious? Yeah, oh, it's, wow. it's my favorite poem, I think, in this whole book. And so I do think it's worth if you want to just read one because it's it is a series of letters. And so you mm -hmm. could choose one because they just come one after the other. OK, um, I'll read the first one because um, there was a moment when I, I thought I was going to be researching, um, you know, this period by way of these letters and then metabolizing them somehow and writing a poem in my own voice. But this poem, I mean, this letter um, that was written um, from Carlisle, Pennsylvania on November 21st, 1864, told me, no, there's already poetry here. Just listen and invite others to listen in the right way. Mr. Abraham Lincoln, I want to know, sir, if you please, whether I can have my son released from the army. He is all the support I have now. His father is dead, and his brother, that was all the help I had. He has been wounded twice. He has not had nothing to send me yet. Now I am old, and my head is blossoming for the grave. And if you do, I hope the Lord will bless you and me. They say that you will sympathize with the poor. He belong to the 8th Regiment Colored Troops. He is a sergeant. Mart Welcome is his name. And I think also what the listener can't see is that the spelling is very different than what we consider correct spelling. So like army is A-R-M-E and support is S-U-B-P-O-R-T. It's such a powerful letter. It it just, I, I feel like it's just a conduit to compassion. Mm -hmm. I mean, it tells you what rides on language and it tells you what kind of faith in um, what I see as a faith in democracy, faith in the professed values of this nation, that people who were enslaved um, and utterly disenfranchised um, held. And, you know, that poem really enacts that again and again, people saying, you know, I'm willing to sacrifice a son for the cause of freedom and humanity. Somebody who's saying that from enslavement is not talking about abstractions. They're talking about freedom and they're talking about being viewed by your nation as a full person. And um, I don't know, like if I was talking earlier about bedrock, <laughs> that's a really, really um, potent bedrock um, that has has always been here in this nation. And so to, to think about what language was asked to do by the authors of those letters is really huge, I think, and, and, and humbling. Poetry could do nothing more 
than what those letters sought to do. Yeah, well, thanks for for talking about that. And I mean, the complexity, like just unpacking some of the complexity in this whole conversation. Can you uh, read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I'm going to layer authors because there's a peer who I have learned a great deal from, Araceli's Germay, who I love, who's also a friend. Um, and this is a poem of hers in which she's thinking about something that the poet Joy Harjo said. And so this is like a layering of um, gratitude for me. And also, you know, maybe a poem like this asks for those different um, apertures from one person to the next to align. It invites that to happen. It's called On Poetry and History after Joy Harjo. On a panel of men who spoke about history and poetry, she sat quietly for much of it. They, the men, were saying strong things, good things, but in authoritative voices, voices that knew they knew things. And she remained the only quiet one. She listened as if she weren't listening. Her face looked forward. Her quiet seemed distant. It had a straight back. And then she interrupted one of the men and said something like, that reminds me of the time. And she spoke of a fellow Native American teacher in her region who committed suicide near the end of one of the years and how he must have been hurting and isolated and in pain. But not many people spoke about that or spoke about his death or their loss when he died. It was swept under the rug. That was the phrase she used. And she said she was at home one day and looking out of the window and she noticed a black thread or string there floating in the frame. And she observed it for a while, floating there, until she realized that that black string was grief. The grief of the professor, the grief of the students, her own grief, the grief of silence, a historical grief, and that she knew that it was her job to take that thread and put it somewhere, weave it into the larger tapestry, she made a gesture then as if that tapestry were just above her head. She said it was her job to put that grief in its place or else someone else, some child or grown person would be out walking and just walk right into it without knowing what it was they'd walked into, what they had then inherited in a way, what they were then carrying and feeling the danger of that, the grief of that. And that was what she said about poetry and history. And that is all I remember from all of the things that were said that entire day. Do you want to share why you chose that? Well, I think in some ways it's, it, it, it speaks to the, you know, what I'm calling like the soul place, the spirit place, the place where we're receptive to a bigger form of feeling and insight. And it lives in poetry, but it doesn't always live in poetry. We have to make space for it. We have to be willing to hear and say, and to, and say it in a way that it sidesteps that ego <laughs> that, you know, appears for each of us differently. But I love this poem. I love that, you know, in the poem, Joy Harjo is, is carrying something forward and in the poem, Araceli Skirmai is sitting there listening and receiving. And then her poem is also offering this thing, which is what, what we can do, you know, if we choose to. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Sure. There's a poem in Wait in the Water called The United States Welcomes You. And um, that is a poem in which I was also thinking about, you know, violence against Black lives. I was thinking about um, what I wanted to see and protect in somebody who might be 
you know, a- apprehended, be, be in the act of being apprehended. And my poem that I that I was writing was just I couldn't get it to move forward beyond that wish to protect. And so it couldn't say or do anything. Um, the one line that was there um, that lives in this poem is um, hands raised, eyes wide, mute as ghosts. And this in the first version of the poem was someone saying, we stand here in this fashion. Um, and so in order to get the poem to move to 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 be or become, I decided to switch perspectives and to speak from the voice of somebody who was apprehending. You know, I was imagining somebody with a weapon in hand and I didn't like how easily I could do that. You know, how my imagination supplied the terms to um, flesh that scene out. Um, but it also guided me to think in some ways about fear um, that maybe sits at the center of, of exchanges like that. Um, fear of the of the other that the person who makes himself powerful in such a situation is actually um, susceptible to. The United States welcomes you. Why and by whose power were you sent? What do you see that you may wish to steal? Why this dancing? Why do your dark bodies drink up all the light? What are you demanding that we feel? Have you stolen something? Then what is that leaping in your chest? What is the nature of your mission? Do you seek to offer a confession? Have you anything to do with others brought by us? to harm, then why are you afraid? And why do you invade our night, hands raised, eyes wide, mute as ghosts? Is there something you wish to confess? Is this some enigmatic type of test? What if we fail? How And to whom do we address our appeal? Even after figuring out how to revise or, you know, re-envision that poem, it sat for a while without a title. The title for me is maybe a metaphor, you know, it, it slides over to the context of immigration. And that also feels like a border, a barrier um, that invites apprehension. And what I think is actually fear in the minds of the people with what we see as the most power in those situations. I'm thinking a lot lately about how we're all differently captive to these terms that we have accepted, terms of our citizenship, um, terms of our humanity in the 21st century. And um, it tempers the anger that I that I do live with to know that the people I am most railing against are caught as well. Every now and then I can can put myself in, in mind of that and feel something different. And that different something feels important, you know. Where do you write? I write either at home or in my office at work. I'm, I'm on campus now or in hotels um, or sometimes on airplanes. All, if I can help it near a window so that I can look out past the human world. Sometimes, you know, it's hard to do that, but there's a squirrel that can tell you there are other systems that people or that beings live within that can help me and my human, you know, concern. Um, and so that that's really important. But I, I have so much less time to write in my life than I have ever before that I have to make it useful no matter where. Um, and so the, those other spaces are are writing spaces now for me. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? <laughs> All I have to do is open my door, go back into my kitchen with my family, with my children who are um, very eager to remind me that I'm many other things than a writer. <laughs> and um, if I come out of a writing um, moment feeling important <laughs> or even a little proud, they can, you know, pull me right back down <laughs> from that into the real, which I'm grateful for. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? 
my husband is that person. And lately, sometimes I say, I need you to look at this and I want you to give me your honest praise. (laughs) Does he do well at that? He's good at that. Yeah. (laughs) How have you dealt with rejection? Um, It hurts. It still hurts sometimes. My first experiences of rejection made me understand that I need to make sure that I am not going to make a work vulnerable or susceptible to rejection too soon because it can harden my heart against it out of, you know, embarrassment or just frustration or futility. And I want to be able to, to bring something into being without that threat operating against it. Cause I have a, a lot of threats of my own. <laughs> um, and so I know to protect myself from, from that, you know, from rejection until a work in my mind has been realized and rejection or, or criticism at that point, um, won't snuff it out. You know, at that point it can be helpful to me. What is your favorite word? I think I've said it many times in this conversation. Um, the soul, I think that's my favorite thing. Um, and when I read the word, the word and other writers' voices, I get excited because I think we share something. Thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show and talking to me. I'm, I'm really grateful and honored. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a real joy to talk with you. I feel like this way of talking, we all have the capacity for it. Like, let's just get quiet together and ask big questions. I think that's one of the big tools that we have for pushing back against the things that seek to make us small and fearful. So thank you very much for sharing this um, space with me in that way. If you like today's show with Tracy K. Smith, author of the poetry collection Such Color, check out my interview with Saeed Jones, author of the poetry collection Prelude to Bruise. We talked about writing your obsessions, how your entire life is a slow writing process, and reckoning with fear. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 375 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Ross Gay, Elizabeth McCracken, and Peter Orner. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.